Listener Production. So sometimes in life, the worst things that can happen to us can actually have the biggest impact and sometimes in really positive ways, like for Bali bombing survivor, Megan Bassioli. This complete stranger held her hand and he was a 16-year-old, Craig Settle, and they have stayed forever friends. Megan's gone on to become an emergency department nurse because of that bedside manner, she says, that Craig taught her. So today in Bali and around Australia, survivors of the Bali bombings, uh, like Megan and Craig, and all the families that lost loved ones, will find their own ways of marking 20 years since that tragedy. And in this episode of The Briefing, we're going to cross to Bali to speak to the journo you just heard, Ali Donaldson. She was there in 2002 and has gone back to mark the occasion. But far from a huge, big, formal public memorial, this will actually be quite a humble affair as survivors choose their own way to mark this life-changing event. So we'll find out how they're going to mark this historic day in our briefing in the second half of the podcast. First, today's headlines. It is Wednesday, the 12th of October, and I'm joined by Antoinette Latouve. There's a pretty dire warning from the International Monetary Fund that a third of the global economy will be in recession next year. The IMF cited inflation, Ukraine and a slowdown in China as factors behind a new downgrade. Thankfully, it predicted Australia wouldn't be one of uh, those Mm. countries in recession next year, but it slashed our growth forecasts. Uh, And despite the big slowdown um, predicted for next year, the IMF has told central banks to stay the course in their fight against Mm. inflation. So that's the tricky part because despite those gloomy forecasts, they're telling central banks to essentially keep jacking up interest rates. Look, an Australian economist, at the moment, they seem to be cautiously optimistic because, yes, previously China has helped cushion us from global recessions. But at the moment, both Japan and China are pretty significant trading partners. They have low inflation, which at first sounds like a good thing, but that's also because their economic growth has stalled significantly. So it is going to be a tough 24 months ahead and hopefully the central banks do their things and Australians aren't expected to be hit too hard. But as you say, uh, that means we need to brace for more interest rate rises. Well, central banks doing their thing in this case is jacking up rates on mortgage holders. So that's pretty grim. Um, So yeah, I think there's just a lot of gloominess around at the moment and that's going to impact on consumer sentiment which it's supposed to do. I mean, that's the, that's the mm. idea, really. Slows down spending. So hang on for the ride. Parts of Victoria are expected to flood for the first time in decades with severe weather warnings in place for the next three days. This is probably the most significant rain event this year and it's not over yet. So that's forecaster Kevin Parkin. So, yeah, it's Victoria's turn, unfortunately, for the floods. Um, Some parts of the state could see up to 100 millimetres of rain in the next few days. And people in flood-prone areas are being told to prepare to be cut off. In New South Wales, evacuation orders are being downgraded, although there are still around 100 warnings across the state, given there's more rain forecast for tomorrow. Meanwhile, the western New South Wales floods have claimed another life, A 46-year-old man was found in his vehicle in floodwaters near Bathurst. Nearly 200,000 Australians hit by robo-debts are being let off the hook. 
The government says they're scrapping the debt reviews because it would be time-consuming, ineffective and negatively affect public confidence in the social security system as if it wasn't already, <laughs> given the problems with these robo-debts. So the robo-debt was a, a data-matching system which identified potential overpayment to welfare recipients by averaging out their income and comparing it to social security payments. And the federal court then found the system to be unlawful and approved a $1.8 billion settlement with victims of the scheme. Yeah, and there's a Royal Commission into that failed scheme um, that's going to kick off at the end of the month. And charges have been dropped against Adnan Sayed over the 1999 killings of Haymin Lee. This is the case made famous in the podcast serial. Yeah, so this is huge news. It looks like it could be completely over now. Mm. Um, So there's been an email from the City of Baltimore State Attorney. It says they've dropped the case against Saeed. And this comes after a judge overturned his murder conviction last month, giving the prosecution 30 days to decide whether to retry Saeed or to drop the charges completely. And the judge had ordered Saeed's release from prison when it was discovered the state had violated its legal obligation to share evidence that could have bolstered his defence. Saeed served more than 20 years in prison for the strangling of Lee and her body was found weeks later buried in a Baltimore park. And Saeed's always maintained his innocence. But I mean, Mm. Tom, that leaves the question, like, who killed Mm. Haymin Lee? Because Mm. her family, you know, are really unhappy and tried Mm. to appeal. I think... The way that podcast was produced sort of got everyone on side with Adnan Saeed, but, mm. you know, there's a family out there who lost their daughter many years ago who don't have answers here, so this won't be a good time for them. Apparently there is somebody prosecutors have their eye on. Um, they mm. are labelling a suspect in her death um, as the, the prime suspect now because he had allegedly threatened her life and had been known to authorities and also had close ties with Adnan Saeed. Well, that would be worth another series if this guy gets tried. And move over Lara Bingle, Chris Hemsworth and Paul Hogan because there's a new face of tourism in Australia. Yeah, it's a computer-generated kangaroo called Ruby who will be voiced by Aussie actor Rose Byrne. I'm really proud to have played a role in this campaign and voiced the character of Ruby the Roo as part of Come and Say G'day. The new Tourism Australia campaign will kick off next week and the cool thing about Ruby... Um, is that she can be voiced by different people in different markets. Mm. So, for example, when they roll out the ads for the Japanese market, um, it will be voiced by a Japanese actress. This comes off the back of a very tough time for Aussie tourism. So we used to get 9.5 million visitors each year on average, but because of the pandemic, we only had 138,000 last year. So it's time to come back. Ruby's got a lot of work to do. And I don't know, Tom, because are you meant to eat the tourism mascot? Because when I saw that ad, Ruby the Roo, she's hopping around Uluru. It just reminded me of my first kangaroo Caesar salad at the Red Centre. But yeah. yeah. Why not? (laughs) Why not? An edible mascot. All right. Thanks, Antoinette. In a moment, we're talking about Bali 20 years on. Three explosions in one night and three explosions that altered the course of so many lives forever, Katrina Blouse. Yeah, so on the night of Wednesday, October 12, 2002, just after 11pm, terrorists detonated suicide bombs in a coordinated attack in the Kuta nightclub district of Bali. Yeah, 202 people died that night. 88 of them were Australians and survivors say it was like an atomic bomb had exploded or an airplane had just crashed into those clubs. 
So as well as the pain and the grief of this event, there were also so many extraordinary stories in the years that have followed. Sliding doors moments, connections among survivors, as well as life-saving medical innovations and burns treatments that were developed by Aussie doctors. Channel 10 reporter Ali Donaldson is actually on the ground in Bali at the moment. She reported on the event when it happened in 2002 and she's been back many times. She's produced a really interesting podcast series called Shockwaves, The Bali Bombings. Um, You can get that on Listener. So we spoke to her yesterday, right on the eve of the anniversary. Ali, you're there for the memorial, so it's obviously front and centre in your mind. But as you've walked around the streets of Kuta this week, has it looked any different or is it just like any other week in Bali? Things always change up here. Um, This week, there are a lot more tourists back. But for the anniversary this year, I think it's going to be a lot more solemn and a smaller event than what we've seen in previous years. So we were at the memorial early yesterday morning around 5am and there was a a man we met there, Jan, who's lighting candles in memoriam and he had this sliding doors moment 20 years ago where he just left the Sari Club. Uh, He thought his flight was at 11pm but it was in fact at 1am and that misstep saved his life. Five of his mates who were Indonesian security guards died and so Jan comes back and lights candles in their honour. Beautiful what people do, the small gestures that mean so much. And he, one year at that anniversary, met his wife and has gone on to have his own family. And so new beginnings, new lives born out of this, which shows how people conquered what was meant to tear people apart. I remember at the time, Ali, and you were you were there reporting on this incident, there were so many similar stories of sliding door moments of people who their lives forever changed because of decisions that they made or didn't make on that night. It must have just been extraordinary for you talking to all of those people. That's what kept striking me so vividly at the time was how many people, you're so right, had just come in or just come out of the Surrey Club or Paddy's Bar and how those split-second decisions. So one of the people I've spoken to a lot over the years and who's in our podcast, Shockwaves of Bali Bombings, um, his name is Eric DeHart and he's with the Coogee Dolphins and he had decided to walk one of his teammates back to the hotel because he was really drunk. So that decision of his saved his and another teammate's life but tragically six of his other Coogee Dolphins mates died and um, Eric's had to ride that one out. He's suffered incredible survivor's guilt but has learnt to turn what happened to him into a positive of the power of survival and the human will to help each other out at times of adversity. So of the survivors, how many of them are going to go back for this and Why do they do that? What do they weigh up in in that decision? That's really interesting this year. A lot of the ones I've been close to over the years have made the decision not to come back to Bali this year. They said it's time for them to either get as far away as possible as they can. Eric's spoken of going to Morocco. (laughs) Um, Or others like Simon Quayle from the Kingsley Cats. He's heading to the memorial in Canberra today to catch up with his AFP mates. So there were really strong ties that were formed out of the pain of that event. Simon lost quite a few of his teammates. He was the coach of the Kingsley Cats. They just touched down that day as well. And he stayed on 
for a week with the survivors until they'd found all of their team members. And during that time, Bali just cleared out. So there were no tourists. A lot of the locals had shut up shop because the tourists had gone. And the AFP officers who had interviewed them at first for the police investigation, one of them we interviewed, Andy Thorpe, said it became very apparent that these people needed people with them. And so after Bali, the AFP set up the family liaison officer service. So when tragedy, the initial tragedy happens, they stay in touch with those people who are most affected. And so every year, but um, Simon, when he can, he goes to the AFL grand final with his AFP mates and they all caught up again this year. And him and his wife, Nori, are planning to go to Canberra, I understand. But other Kingsley Cat members are staying in Perth and having a celebratory footy match showing how they've survived this. And many have chosen to make the day one of celebration as opposed to one of pain. What have some people said about how this has altered the course of their lives? Oh, this is the bit that I've just loved the most touching base with these people. Obviously, they are carrying extreme trauma. It's gone down as Australia's worst peacetime atrocity. 88 Australians lost their lives among the 202, but so many more, hundreds more were injured and thousands more of their lives were rocked. But I spoke to Megan Bassioli. She's a Perth girl. She was 14 at the time. She's the youngest Australian survivor. Her dad died in the attack. She hassled him to go to the Sari Club. He died and she suffered incredible burns. But this teenage boy came and held her hand. He was a complete stranger as she was laid down poolside until taken to hospital. So for hours in pain, in shock, not knowing where her dad was, this complete stranger held her hand. And he was a 16-year-old, Craig Settle, and they have stayed forever friends. Megan's gone on to become an emergency department nurse because of that bedside manner, she says, that Craig taught her. This was really powerful to me when she was telling me this. She said those simple, small gestures. She said, someone just sitting there holding my hand, talking to me, saved my life in many ways. And she said, now working in in the emergency department, she never forgets this. She always spends that moment, makes eye contact. It's something that the remarkable Dr Fiona Ward did with her when she was treating her and Fiona was the one who led the Australian medical triage when more than 50 people were sent down to Australia to save their lives. Yeah, and as part of her work, um, Professor Fiona Wood developed a new burns treatment that was called spray-on skin. So that was obviously (laughs) something quite incredible to come out of this tragedy. Tell us about her work. Oh, Fiona is amazing. Um, She pioneered spray-on skin. So the way she explains it, it's in the podcast. I I really feel like you need to listen to her explain Mm -hmm. it. But in simple terms, she says it's like this bread and butter sandwich. The skin is like a bread and butter sandwich. You've got to open it up, scrape out the butter, and then they turn that into a liquid form which they can spray directly back on using your own cells. And it can be done immediately. And then the healing of that is just so much better And that spray-on skin she pioneered is still helping to save lives today. So, Ali, you mentioned before that you expect tomorrow's memorial to be fairly solemn and smaller than previous years. So can you tell us exactly what is planned? How will it look? And given that it's smaller than previous years, does that tell us that we are slowly winding down the memorialising of this tragedy? 
I think because so many of the survivors from Australia didn't decide to come back to Bali, there's just a very small memorial being done at the Australian Consulate General tomorrow. They'll have a little service there. A lot of others will do the informal memorial, which happens every year here. They'll go to the site. Mm. Now, the site itself remains derelict. There's nothing there. Mm. Uh, The owner has never reached a deal with anyone on forming the Bali Peace Park, which was something championed by my fellow colleague, Nick Way, who just passed away last week. It was something he came up with. It was a 20-year plan that never quite made it. But across the road is a big memorial built with all 202 people's names on it. And every night that's lit up and people come from all over the world. That's been going on for years and years now. And I think a lot of people have just made their own quiet, calm plans to do that. But here it's actually quite lovely because the Balinese are very spiritual. They're Hindu and they believe all the earth's souls rest in their ocean. So I also think down by the beach on the um, sunset will be quite special. Just touching on the Balinese reaction to all of this, I mean, tourism is obviously the, the biggest part of their economy and the Bali bombings impacted on that for, for quite a long time. How are the Balinese yes. marking this anniversary? Look, tourism, you're spot on there. It's their lifeblood. So what happened when the bombs happened, it cut off their economic livelihoods. But that aside, as I said earlier, 38 Indonesians died, including Sari Club workers. I interviewed another lady, Au, who was just 21 at the time. She was a cashier and she was so badly burnt in the attack and she never got brought to Australia. And so she's never really worked again because tourists didn't like the look of her scars. She's had a beautiful little family of four girls. They are a delight. And she's also found forgiveness in her heart so she could fill it with love instead of hate is what she said. But every day in Bali, they put out little tributes, little rice and flour and burn incense. They believe it's called Island of the Gods here. Mm. As I said, they're extremely spiritual. And that at the time, 20 years ago, that was a big unexpected for a lot of people. That just wrapped people in comfort and love and understanding, which was so important at the time. And I think there'll be so much of that in the air. It'll be a really heady feeling of spirituality and rest and obviously remembering those that are no longer with us, but thinking about what sort of society and what sort of world we want to live in. That was Ali Donaldson. And of course, you can check out her amazing podcast series called Shockwaves. You can get it on the Listener app or Apple Podcasts or Spotify. What strikes me so much in, I've spoken to Bali survivors over the years and, you know, reading so much about these attacks, it it really just epitomises the loss of innocence in so many ways. You know, as Australians, we always thought Bali was this really, and it still is, this beautiful safe place Mm. because so many of the people who were affected by these bombings were so young. You know, they were teenagers or in their early 20s celebrating or on holidays. Yeah, it was just an incredibly devastating loss of innocence on so many levels. Yeah, what I found interesting about what Ali just told us is that I think I'd imagined this big kind of serious formal event there on the site in Kuda. But from what she's told us, over 20 years, these survivors have really evolved the way they mark this occasion. So, you know, from the footy game in Perth, she talked about those AFP officers reconnecting at the AFL grand final, celebrating the work that they did. 
She talked about Megan and her nursing career in Perth. It really shows that these people are actually now just more focused on building on the positives that came from this really dark moment. And I think that's really amazing. Tomorrow on The Briefing, the DNA lab crisis in Queensland. Listener.